Okay, so as we go into the Old Testament here, and I know we've been living in the New Testament, we've been in First and Second Peter uh, for a while, and as we go into the Old Testament, it's always important to kind of just give you a backdrop, a framework for what we're going to uh, be reading, and to try to bring you into the story as best as I can, okay? So uh, let's go way back in the BCs, okay? So around 587 BC, the Babylonians invaded Judah. And they destroyed the city of Jerusalem along with Solomon's incredible temple. This was the third of three campaigns into that region, okay? On all three of those occasions, the Babylonians took a number of the Israelites captive. Uh, Prime example would be Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For those of you that have grown up in church, you know those stories, right? They were exiled out. And, and they would take these captives, and then they would resettle them in Babylon. It was one of the things that they did. A- about 70 years after uh, the first Babylonian invasion, uh, the king of Persia, Cyrus, who had since defeated Babylon, he gave the Jews permission to return to Jerusalem in order to rebuild their temple. Incredible thing. And so under the leadership of a guy named Zerubbabel, a name that you're for sure going to name your kid, the exiled Jews returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple. And at that point, things are starting to look good, right? Things are looking right, like this nation that had been punished, right? It's like, okay, like like the writing's on the wall. You guys are going to return to this place. You're going to be that blessed nation again, that example, and yet... The people refused once again to turn away from the very sins that God had judged their ancestors for. And whenever we talk about sin, sin is anything that goes against God's will. And so the temple hasn't been maintained. The sacrifices had ceased. The the Jews continued to adopt the the practices of uh, of the other nations in regards to religion and culture. These very nations that God has said, I set you apart from those practices, those pagan practices, that idolatry. I've set you aside to be a holy nation, and yet they continue to fall into that trap. And so then we see in 458 B.C., Ezra is sent to bring spiritual revival. And so Ezra goes and leads this this revival, uh, and yet we see Jerusalem, the city, is still in shambles, still a mess, uh, in part because in Ezra chapter 4, we see that as they were rebuilding, the nations around them did not like it, did not want Jerusalem rebuilt, and actually sent a letter to the king, uh, who we're going to be introduced to in a minute, and, and lied about their intentions. And so the king said, stop, and put a stop to all of the rebuilding. And so here's Jerusalem. They, uh, they, they don't have walls. They don't have gates. It's a mess. And they're trying to find themselves spiritually. And so it's under this umbrella that we're introduced into our passages today. And so in Nehemiah chapter 1, let's look at verses 1 through 3. It says this, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. 
And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Okay, so Nehemiah introduces himself as the author and then he states what? The, the, the location of where he's at and the time of year. Now, the, the month of Kislev is what we call November, December, and Artaxerxes, who's the king at that time, um, he began his reign in around 465 BC. So when it says the 20th year, it's 445 BC when this is taking place. Susa, the, the location that's mentioned here, this is where uh, the Persian kings would go for the winter. It was their Phoenix or Palm Springs. And, and then we're introduced to the messenger, right? Hananiah, or Hanani. <laughs> and he's mentioned as a brother here. Now, we don't know if he was like a blood brother or, or not, or just this messenger who was connected. But either way, he comes back with this report. And the reports on the conditions of Jerusalem. And he states what? The walls are broken down and the gates are completely burned. And so Nehemiah hears what's going on with his people. Here he is, this exiled Israelite, and he hears what's happening. And then how does he respond? Look at verse four. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So he is so broken, so burdened over the state of Jerusalem that he just weeps. He just breaks. Breaks down. And what's really important for us to see is when you talk about Nehemiah, it's always vision, vision. Incredible. But what we miss is Nehemiah's vision began as a burden. Okay? It, it, it began as something that caused deep sorrow in his life. And here's the thing, you guys. If we love God, I'm not talking about if we say we believe in him or we would consider ourselves connected to God, but if we say we love God, you guys, anything that holds back the display of his glory bothers us. It bothers us. We're not okay with it. It hurts. And, 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 and this is bigger than just, oh, these gates, these walls, like, well, what's the big deal, right? Uh, this, is, this is like literally, these are, these are God's set aside people, right? They're to reflect, they're to re represent who he is to the known world. And, and in those days, uh, those walls reflected the strength uh, of the God that it was protecting, right? And so the nations are laughing. The, the God of Israel is a mockery at this point. They're mocking him. They're mocking uh, the walls, the setup. This God can't defend himself, all of this. And so Nehemiah knows more than anything what the reputation of God is right now, and it breaks his heart, especially when he thinks about that city is to be the example, the representation of who God is. And so we see him just break. He's mourning. He's weeping over this. And we go, well, what did he do? Like, what did he do in response to this? And you guys, what, 
what's so surprising here is, is you look at it and you go, well, he didn't really do anything. Right? Like, he didn't, he didn't sneak out. Like, he didn't wait till everyone fell asleep at night and he makes his way across the desert and he's like, here I am. Right? He didn't, he didn't go to the king and like, hey, like, this is what's going on. Like, you know, I'm done. <laughs> right? Like, like, he didn't do any of those things. In fact, he didn't even like, we don't even see him sharing with anybody else what's going on. And what we see here is that Nehemiah, in his sorrow, in his despair, he chooses to do something that's very unpopular. He chooses to wait. He knew what so many of us have a hard time remembering. You guys, what could be and should be can't be until God is ready for it to be. And and you guys, a vision that God lays on your heart, a vision, a burden, a passion that God lays on your heart that doesn't necessarily require immediate action. Are you hearing me? Because that's not, that's not what we think in a lot of cases. Why? Because often, you guys, the vision he gives us, we need to mature in preparation for it. Okay? Not, see, and what's so cool is not only does God work in the vision once he's given us the vision, and then, and then we go through this process without just reacting, God matures the vision. Have you ever noticed that? How the vision actually shifts and changes, and, it, and God matures the vision. But not only is he maturing and developing the vision for you, he's also maturing and developing you for that vision. And that's so important because the tendency is to assume that since I know what I'm to do, I know what I'm supposed to do, that means I'm ready to do it, right? I've identified the issue. I have a burden. I have a passion for that cause, for that person, for that situation. And so I'm ready to go. Let's go, God. But you guys, those, (laughs) the two don't always coincide. God has to grow us into our vision. See, what's so beautiful about God is when a vision is given by God, he goes to work in you to prepare you for what he's called you to do. Because what is, if it's a vision from God, your vision is just simply an extension of God's vision. And you guys, God's timing is perfect. It's perfect. You're like, ugh. It's perfect. The Apostle Paul said it this way. I love this in Philippians chapter two, verse 13. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love that. You guys, he's working in you to prepare you to act on his purposes. And and there's so many examples throughout scripture of, of good ideas and bad timing. Okay, all throughout scripture. In fact, like, let's just, let's just use Moses, right? Moses, he's a great poster child here. Um, he's talked about a lot. Uh, in Acts chapter seven, okay, Acts chapter seven, 23 through 25, he's talking about Moses here. He says, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart. He's going through a midnight crisis, right, 40. It came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wrong, 
He defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So what happened there? Moses knows what he's called to do, doesn't he? He knows what he's called to do. And so in this moment, when he sees this slave, one of his people being beaten by this Egyptian, he goes, this is the time. I'm gonna intervene. God's called me to this. When I intervene, they're gonna know, right? They're gonna know. And so what does he do? He immediately acts on that. I know what I'm called to do. And he goes and he steps right in and he takes out, he kills the Egyptian. And guess what? He just added 40 years, <laughs> in a desert, <laughs> right? And, and, and I look at that and I go, man, his motives, his heart, that wasn't wrong, right? But his timing was awful. You guys, you look at, you look at Paul. You, you, I mean, Paul in Acts chapter nine, verse 15, Ananias is told after Paul has this crazy supernatural encounter with God. And, and, and he goes from persecuting the church to then being sent to be used by God as this incredible missionary. And Ananias uh, is, is, is literally sent to go, and, and he's like, I'm not going to go to that guy, God. Do you know who that is? God's like, no, you're going to go to him. And then in Acts 9.15, it says this, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Okay, so Paul, very quickly after his calling, after he received Jesus at his, as his Lord and Savior, very quickly, he is introduced to the direction and the vision for his life, isn't he? You're gonna be used by me and you're gonna suffer, <laughs> but you're gonna be used by me to reach the Gentiles. Incredible calling, right? Incredible. And so we're thankful for that. You should be thankful for that calling, okay? And, and so Paul's like, let's go. But then we see in Galatians chapter 1, 17 and 18, Paul is speaking. He says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Okay, so the vision is there, the purpose, the plan, the burden is there. And yet, Paul, you're gonna spend three years. I'm gonna prepare you for what I've called you to do. I'm gonna prepare you. It's not, the time's not right. And we see this all throughout the Old and the New Testament where people have the right intentions, the right burden, the right vision, and yet God's like, hold on, because this is my vision and it's my timing and my timing is perfect. So when I'm in that position, right? When, when I'm that Nehemiah, when that burden, that vision is there, what do I do in the meantime, right? That's the next question. Well, what did Nehemiah do as he's waiting? It says he prayed, he fasted, and as we're gonna see, he also planned. So Nehemiah is, is not sitting there doing nothing, right? As he's waiting, he is praying, he's fasting, and he's planning. You guys, you need to understand, when Nehemiah heard about the condition of Jerusalem, there was nothing he could do to fix it, okay? Like, like by our standards, by our way of thinking, he was in the wrong place with the wrong job working for the wrong guy. How many times have you said that? <laughs> God, that's incredible. Yes, that's, uh, yeah. but God, do you know who my boss is? 
God, do you know my situation? God, do you know where I live? God, there's no way I can do that. By all accounts, that's his story. Right? He didn't, and he didn't have the ability to just change that, right? Like, he's reporting directly to the king. You don't walk into a king and say, hey, I'm done. Like, I got something else to do. No, that doesn't work. And so he's not even free to act upon this vision, right? But we see he's not inactive. And, and guys, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to pray about it. And then God, tomorrow, let's go. No, we actually see a period of four months here. A period of four months where he's praying, he's seeking the Lord, he is uh, fasting. And, and, and so this is a time where, yeah, he's waiting, but he is extremely productive. You guys, prayer is so critical. Okay, prayer is not just some Christian lingo. It's not something we say in churches or, or, or sing about because we're supposed to. You guys, prayer is amazing. Prayer brings us into communion with God. It brings us into connection, into deeper conversation with God. And here's what happens in particular when it's a vision. You guys, when you start praying to God over a vision, over a burden, what he does is he helps you see the things you weren't even looking for. See, when you, when you think you have the answer, when you think you know what needs to happen, when you think uh, that these steps have to happen in order, um, oftentimes what happens is what we miss are things that we didn't even know we were gonna miss, right? We, we, didn't, we hadn't even considered that. The beauty of prayer is God interjects and he introduces you into things to fulfill the vision that you didn't even know were a part of it. And so when you pray, it's taking you beyond your mind and it's bringing you into the very mind of Christ. And so there's things in prayer when you take these huge decisions to him, there's things that he's going to show you you didn't even know that was on the table. You didn't even know that was a thought at first, right? So um, we, we see that he, through prayer, uh, shows us things that we often miss or we don't expect to see. And ultimately is this, you guys, when we talk about prayer and fasting, what it does is it aligns us to God's vision. It aligns our vision to God's. That's so important. That's so important. And, and, and when you think about fasting here, you guys, fasting is so important. It's such a critical spiritual discipline. It, it, it has changed my life. As There is not a decision our family makes with, without fasting. There's not one. And, and, and I can't challenge you enough to engage in that. In fact, our whole church, like a year and a half, two years ago, we did a church-wide fast for 30 days. I know, you're like, glad I wasn't going there at that time. That's crazy. <laughs> and it was incredible. And, there, and moments that people had with God they'd never had before. And you guys, what fasting does, whether it's just straight up food or, 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 or withholding this or that in your life, you guys, what, what fasting does is it removes the competing voices that are competing with God's voice in your life. That's the beauty of fasting, is it removes the competition. In fact, one of the things that is always amazing about fasting 
is when you engage in it, God reveals things in your life that were distracting you that you didn't even know about. And, and, and so Nehemiah, Nehemiah is like, I, man, I need to hear from God. This is a huge burden. This is a huge vision. There's no way I can do this. Like on paper, no way. This doesn't make sense. My, my role, my title, where I'm at, I'm not even there. And, and so I have to go before the Lord in this. And, and I'm not just gonna pray about it. I'm gonna actively move anything in my life that is going to hinder my ability to hear from this perfect and holy and loving God, because this is his vision. And so that's what he does. And then we see what he prays, starting in verse five. He says, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. I, lo I love what he kicks this little section off of prayer before the Lord. He goes, he says, and I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. In other words, God, you are above everything. God, you are amazing. You are sovereign over all of this. There is nothing in this world, in this culture, that's beyond you. And so God, it's, 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 it's that. I just want to declare who you are. And God, I want to acknowledge this. I acknowledge that you are faithful. You are faithful to fulfill all of your promises. Okay? Like, like, and what he's doing is he's calling on God here, right? Like this is, this is remarkable. He's calling on God to do what God's promised to do. You guys, God keeps his covenants, right? Like, like God doesn't lie. He can't. Like, like God is truth. <laughs> he's the definition of truth. <laughs> so we can't lie. He, he will follow through on every one of his promises. Every one of his covenants will prove true that he makes with anybody. And, and, and you guys, what's, what's so awesome is, and we see this all throughout the Old Testament. I was just processing this yesterday because all day long yesterday, my kids kept saying, hey, dad, you promised you promised. Hey, Dad, remember when you promised? Hey, you promised. Dad, you promised. And, and I'm not exaggerating. It must have been 30 times of them reminding me of a promise I made. And I finally just said, stop. Stop. I know what I said. Right? Guys, here's what's so crazy. God loves it when we remind him of his promises. He loves it. 
He loves it. He's like, you are paying attention. I did say that. And you're right. Every single time I'm going to come through. Every single time. I'm never late. Um, What I say I will do, I will do. That is who I am. Right? And, 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 And so he loves that Nehemiah is literally declaring to him his promises. And I love how he says, God, you keep uh, covenants, but you don't just keep covenant. You keep your steadfast love. Your steadfast love, it never ceases. God, for those who are going to love you and obey you, your love is a steady, constant force in their life. And so Nehemiah is saying this. So he's declaring who God is. And then he's like, and God, this is what you promise for these people if they'll follow you, if we'll follow you and, and, and obey you. And so what does that lead him into? Confession. Confession. In light of that, Nehemiah confesses. Now notice the progression here of Nehemiah's confession. What does he do first? He acknowledges first and foremost the nation. He says, we've sinned. This nation, we have sinned against you, God. We have not lived how you've asked us to live. We've not been the people group that you've called us to be. He doesn't stop there. What does he go, what does he do next, right? He then addresses his own family. God, our, our, my family, my family sinned against you. My family hasn't been faithful. My family has known what you've called us to do and we haven't done it. God, forgive us. And then he takes it a step farther, right? God, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I'm guilty of not following you, God. I'm guilty of turning away from you, God. I'm guilty of not doing what you've called and asked me to do. And guys, what a powerful moment and what a refreshing moment for us, isn't it? To see this leader not blame shift. I mean, he had every right, right? Like, well, of course Jerusalem's struggling. Of course it's in shambles. Look at them. Look at what they've continued to do. Glad I'm over here. I'm not like that, God. Right? Like they're getting what they deserve. Okay? And, 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 and so he has every opportunity to, to do that. And yet he doesn't shift the blame. He doesn't remove himself, right? He doesn't, he doesn't talk in a, well, they type language, right? He is talking about how his own sinful nature, his own sinful decisions have contributed to the unfaithfulness of the entire nation. Guys, we need to hear that. Because over and over again, this is the thing in our culture that I hear. We are so quick to blame other Christians and go, well, of course they got what they deserve, right? How often do we say that? Well, of course that's gonna happen to them, right? Because they did this or they thought this. I don't really know that, but I believe they thought that. And, and we go down this road, right? And, and, and we're literally, what we're doing in that moment is you're removing yourself from the equation and God is literally going, hello, hello. And, and so I look at this, I go, man, what a refreshing thing to see a leader not separate himself, but just go, man, I'm part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. My family's part of the problem here, God. And guys, here is a natural response that will always happen if you begin your prayer time declaring the truths of who God is. 
and, 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 and saying, God, you are this. You are holy. You are mighty. You are, you are all-powerful, all-loving. You are sovereign God. You fulfill all of your promises. You know what will happen immediately out of that? You will see where there's a disconnect in your life between how you're living and how he's called you to live. Every single time. You will recognize things in your life and you will see the disconnect between you and him. And so I wanna I want challenge some of us because I hear the word confession and, and, and I think people that are either new to church or, or exploring faith, they, they hear this term and you guys, confession isn't this meaningless exercise that we do to feel better about ourselves. Okay, that's, that's not what it is. You guys, confession is communicating to God that I'm ready to change. That's what confession is. It's saying, God, I'm ready to change. It's, it's literally saying, God, I'm wrong. My way is wrong. And I'm ready to change. You guys, with, I want you to just imagine, like, without confession, there is no way to establish a relationship with God. Do you understand that? Because if I don't see or, or, or feel a need to confess what's going on in my life, you know what I'm saying? I'm saying I'm good. And if I'm saying I'm good, why would I ever need a savior? Right? So confession is the ultimate sign of life change, of heart change. Why? Because in and of itself, I'm communicating that I see that there is a disconnect, that, that, that I am living in opposition to a perfect, holy, all-powerful, all-loving God who loves me so much that he's created a way for me to experience and have a relationship with him. And so, and so confession is me saying, I see that disconnect and I'm ready. I'm ready to change. That's confession. And so guys, you can't, like I hear all the time, I'll oh, just believe and, and, and say this prayer. Like, like you, if you don't know about the disconnect between you and God, why do you need a savior? I know I needed a savior. Man. And so confession is so, so important. And it's not just important to establish the relationship with God. You guys, confession should be an active part of your walk with Christ. So Nehemiah, having confessed these sins, he then calls on God to once again remember. Remember God. And in verses 8 and 9, he's quoting different parts of Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and, and, and as he's quoting and, and, and saying, God, remember when you said this, remember what you meant here. I, I, what I love about this is Nehemiah asks these questions in light of what? His understanding of God's word. You guys, he's literally quoting scripture back to God. Okay, see, see here's the thing. He knew how the condition of Jerusalem affected God, how? Because he knew God's word, right? He knew what God thought of his people. How, why? Because of God's word. 
you know, when he's, when he's mourning, his mourning over the nation, over the people, it comes out of what? His understanding of God's word. Do you see the common theme? And you guys, it's also out of his understanding of the word of God that he doesn't mourn like someone with no hope. Amen? This isn't this hopeless mourn. It's not a hopeless burden, right? And so in verse 11, this is what we read. It says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Okay, so right here in verse 11, Nehemiah prays for two things, okay? The first thing he prays for is an opportunity, He prays for an opportunity. See, what Nehemiah wanted was an opportunity to present his vision to the king. Okay? Guys, one of the things you and I should be continually praying for, what this church should be continually praying for, is opportunities. Opportunities. See, too often we're like, God, I need you to just do that. I need that miracle right there. Do it. And we're just like, like everything is like, it's got to be a miracle. It's got to be a miracle. It's got to be a miracle. And, 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 and we're not praying for the thing that I believe we really need to be praying for, which is opportunities. When you think of the things that you're praying for, oftentimes, guys, what you really need is just an opportunity. And when you start praying consistently for an opportunity, what happens? You start looking for it, don't you? You start to look for it. And here's what's also interesting about this. Nehemiah never prayed for God to rebuild the wall. Do you notice that? He doesn't say, hey, God, I'm coming before you. I'm praying. I'm going to take four months here, all right? And at the end of the four months, God, do it. Go, God. You be God, right? I'll be your biggest fan. Whatever I can do from right here, God, we're good. Okay, so go, go do it. Go Old Testament on that wall. Resurrect it, rise it, right? Do you notice he doesn't pray for that? What does he do? He prays for an opportunity to go rebuild it himself. Ooh. See, you guys, he wasn't expecting God to do something independently of him. He was looking, he was looking for an opportunity to work alongside God. And what does he do? He volunteers himself. He volunteers himself. It just echoes what we read in Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, 8. I love this. It says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me, right? You guys, that may be one of the scariest responses you can imagine, isn't it? Right? To a burden, to a vision, is actually saying, God, here I am, send me. God, I pray that you use me in this. God, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. And you know what? Here's what I want to encourage you with. You do not have to be afraid of saying that. 
You don't have to be afraid of responding to the burden or the vision in that way. Why? Well, look at what Ephesians 3.20 says. Ephesians 3.20, so incredible. It says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Is that incredible? Okay, I'm going to read it again because obviously it's not. All right, whatever, okay? You got to stick around baptisms. All right, Ephesians 3.20. Okay, listen, church, listen. If you're a Jesus follower, this should absolutely inspire you to respond differently than maybe you have been. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask, beyond all that you could ask, and then he says this, just to throw it in, or even think, beyond all that you could ask or even think, according to the power, that's not yours, that's his, at work within us. And that's why you can respond like Nehemiah just responded. And so in addition to opportunity, what else do we see him pray? He also prays for success in casting his vision to the king. Nehemiah prayed for God to cause uh, the king to support his vision. He's like, God, I pray for favor. I pray that you open this door. I pray that you would just tug on this king's heart to hear about this this, this vision, this burden that I have. Lord, do something great. This is a tough ask. And then what we see, and we're not gonna fully see this till next week, (laughs) you gotta come back, is Nehemiah during this time develops a plan. Guys, this is, don't miss this. He develops a plan. Now, why is this so important? This is so important because I hear over and over again how that's like wrong or why don't you have faith? You're developing a plan for that? Like, where's your faith in God? And I'm like, eh, a plan is helpful. And oftentimes we can be the quickest to react and respond. And during that time of prayer, during that time of fasting, God is going to help build the necessary plan in order to prepare you for the opportunity. Because you guys, if you're praying for something big, you better bet on the fact that you're gonna be asked questions about it. And because he's gone through this planning process, he was prepared, as we'll see, when the king asks him. And so he is at work. He's praying, he's fasting, he's planning for what God has for him. And then we see him throw in, hey, by the way, this is my position. And what's his position? And this goes hand in hand with the opportunity is he reveals this, this, this powerful political position that he has in the Persian Empire. You guys, he's the cupbearer to the king. The king doesn't taste anything that hasn't first gone through Nehemiah's mouth. Like nothing. He's, he tests everything. Okay, there's no food that the king was going to eat. There's nothing that the king was going to drink. Now, if and, and this is a big role. Why? Because this king's father had been literally assassinated by one of his servants. So you don't think this king was suspicious? So who do you think he puts in that role? Who would you put in that role? You're like, I don't know. Probably the most trusted person I could ever think of. Yes, right? You would. 
And so he, so Nehemiah has earned this reputation with the king, and he's got this incredible position. This position in, in uh, man, in the, in, in the Old Testament, you guys, this was a position to where that, that person had authority. That person had the ear of the king. The king would, would have conversations with them that they didn't have with other people. And so Nehemiah was respected. He had the king's ear, and the king trusted him. And so what, what does that mean? Why did he throw that in? You guys, God had placed him exactly where he needed to be with the exact role he needed to have in order to make this vision happen. And so you guys, all of you, if the burden, the vision is from God, you can trust that he'll place you exactly where you need to be. Exactly where you need to be. You can trust him. So I want to close with these questions. First is this. What has God placed on your heart? Is there a burden? Is there a vision that God has placed on your heart? What's your response been to that? What's your response been? And then I want to point you back to his response and how it started. What did it start with? It started with confession. Confession. And so the question I have for you is, one, for those of you that have never made a decision to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, is there an initial confession that needs to happen in your life? Is there a moment right now that he's saying, it's time to receive me as your Lord and Savior. Are you ready to change? And, 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 and maybe you've been processing, you've been praying, you've known there's a disconnect and you know what these things are. And God is like, choose me, choose me. Confess that, be willing to turn from that. Receive me as your Lord and Savior. And so maybe for some of you, for the first time ever, you're gonna actually confess what those things are in your life that are against this perfect, holy, loving, all-powerful, almighty God. And you just say, God, this is, this is not of you. And so I repent of this, I confess it. And God, I, I make the decision to change and to turn to you. And maybe that's some of you in this room, even right now. And if that's you, don't wait for the lights to dim or the worship to start. You just bow your head right now and pray that. And then maybe for some others of us, it's, it's literally a confession similar to Nehemiah. It's a confession that's long overdue, right? It's a confession where you haven't really evaluated some of these areas in your life and, and maybe you've blame shifted. Maybe you're great at listing all the other um, people who have greater issues than you uh, or who are maybe the problem in your life and God's saying, no, 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 you're the problem. That's not a fun prayer. But maybe that's exactly what we need. 